0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 29. With the Israelites rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in Paul's day and in the majority through the centuries up to our present day, how do we understand the promises God made to Israel? And how do we explain that the vast majority of those who have believed in Jesus Are non Jews. What does it mean to be the people of God? Who are the people of God? Paul starts off Romans 9 with his own personal lament over the hardening of Israel to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he's ready to take us into the Old Testament to explain how God's own Old Covenant people are largely left out of the New Covenant people. Paul's argument in Romans 9 and 10 covers the issue from God's side and from man's side in the pride and presumption that has developed out of their special relationship to God, the people of Israel have come to misunderstand both sides. From God's side, they've misunderstood the role of mercy. And from the human side, they've misunderstood the role of faith. In this lesson, we address the misunderstanding of mercy. In our next lesson, we will address the misunderstanding of faith. To explain how Israel has misunderstood mercy... Paul will give us four main points, in his moving from the patriarchs in Genesis to Moses and the Exodus to the words of the prophets. We begin with the patriarchs in chapter 9, verses 6 to 13, where Paul starts with the assertion that God's people are defined by God's choice, not by bloodline and not by human works. So let's read that, Romans 9, 6 to 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The first mention of Israel comes in the second half of verse 6, and we need to establish what we mean by Israel right now before we go any further. It is possible to speak of Abraham as having spiritual children and to speak of the church as a spiritual Israel. That's not what Paul's doing here. The argument follows quite clearly that Paul is clarifying the bloodline that eventually produces the 12 physical tribes of Israel. With the possible exception of Israel in 11.25, all of Paul's uses of the term Israel in Romans 9-11, which are all of his uses in Israel in the entire letter, quite clearly refer to the actual people Israel. Paul doesn't use the term in Romans as a reference to a spiritual Israel, and he doesn't use it as a reference to the church. So when Paul says that not all are descended from Israel are Israel, he's not trying to widen out who might be considered Israel. He's doing the opposite. He's narrowing in our definition of who is Israel. He presents two cases of two brothers in order to show that only one of the two brothers helps to father Israel. One brother is chosen, the other is not. Which brother is considered the promised child depends on God's free choice, not on human tradition. As Paul says in verse 8, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. Paul starts with Abraham and Sarah in verse 9. And so our two brothers are going to be Ishmael and Isaac. So years after God had promised descendants, They did not seem to be able to have a child. So Abraham and Sarah decided to help God out through the culturally accepted method of choosing a surrogate maid who would produce a child. And this child would legally be designated as Abraham and Sarah's heir. So Hagar had the child named Ishmael. God, however, refused to accept Ishmael as the promised child. He would not be bound by Abraham and Sarah's plan or by human tradition. And so even if it had not been clear up to this point, God made quite clear that his promise was not just that Abraham would have a child, but that Abraham and Sarah would have a child together. Isaac became that child through whom God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. Isaac was chosen, not Ishmael. So then Paul moves on to Isaac's children in verse 10 through 12. And in this case, Rebekah gave birth to twins, with Esau narrowly beating out Jacob, as firstborn. And in spite of human tradition, God chose the second born. He chose Jacob. He renamed Jacob Israel, and through his 12 sons, the 12 tribes were born. So in neither Abraham's case nor in Isaac's case was God bound by human decision or tradition regarding who would father Israel. The choice was God's to make. And this is the point Paul wants us to remember. God's in charge of who gets designated as his people. We also need to recognize at this point that we're not talking about individual salvation. We're talking about how God chose Israel for their special role. It doesn't automatically follow that Ishmael and all of his descendants, nor that Esau and all of his descendants are excluded from the eternal kingdom of God. It was possible under the Old Covenant to trust in God and receive his grace without being an Israelite. And we can think of Melchizedek or the Canaanite Rahab or the Syrian general Naaman. We do do have this harsh quote in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So we need to talk about that a minute. It's probably helpful to recognize that hated does not necessarily mean in the Old Testament language that God felt hatred towards Esau, but rather that he acted out wrathfully against Esau. It's even more helpful to note that Paul's not quoting from Genesis, but from Malachi 1-2. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And even as the name Israel can designate a person or designate a nation, so also the names Isaac and Esau can be used to either designate an individual or to designate the nation born of the individuals. And that's exactly what Malachi is doing. Malachi is using Isaac and Esau not as a designation of the two brothers, but as the nations that came from the two brothers, the nation Israel and the nation Edom. So God's hatred is described by Malachi as making Esau's mountains desolate and appointing his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. It's destruction. So though the majority of people in Israel and the majority of the people in Edom both deserved God's wrath for their wickedness, God brought Israel back from the Babylonian exile, and that's an expression of of love through mercy, while he allowed Edom to be destroyed. So Malachi describes the compassionate mercy shown to one wicked people, and that's love, and the just wrath shown to the other, which he describes as hate. Now, recognizing the reference as nations instead of individuals fits with the corporate view that Paul's now attending to. His examples indicated God's choice of individual men. That's true. He was talking about the choice of Isaac over Ishmael and the choice of Jacob over Edom. But then the point is that those individual men were chosen to give birth to the corporate groups. Edom was not the chosen people. Israel was. This doesn't mean that no Edomite entered the kingdom of heaven either. It it, it does mean that the special old covenant people was not Edom. It was Israel. So far, that, that's the election we're talking about. Who was chosen to be the people of God, and what was the basis for that choice? Israel was chosen, and the basis was not their righteousness or their size. It was not that somehow Jacob was a better little baby than, than Esau was, and certainly in the story of their growing up, um, Jacob wasn't a better person than Esau. It wasn't based on human tradition, or human desire, or human planning, or human righteousness. God made the free choice of which people would fill this special role. That was God's idea and God's plan, God's choice. Paul's next point is going to come to us from the time of Moses, and he's arguing that God's free choice of mercy is just. And it's just because it doesn't depend on any human criteria. So we see this in Romans nine fourteen to 18. Let's read that. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Paul's rhetorical language here reminds us of chapters 6 and 7 in Romans. He starts with an introductory question, What shall we say then? After that, he uses a question to raise an objection, There is no injustice with God, is there? And he gives us a short answer, May it never be. Then we move on to a more developed answer. The answer shows one of the challenges in making a clean distinction between God's work through a group and God's work through individuals. So from the corporate sense, God chose to pour his wrath on Egypt while he showed mercy to Israel. But from the individual sense, God's purpose with the group Egypt did involve his work on the individual who was Pharaoh over Egypt. Paul quotes first from Exodus thirty-three nineteen, where he says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion and here we're talking about Israel this is in the immediate context of exodus 32 to 34 god has just shown mercy to the people of israel for breaking the ten commandments in fashioning a golden calf god chose not to destroy them so when it says god will have mercy on who he has mercy that's who he's talking about his his merciful decision to not destroy israel after the golden calf incident and and it's a corporate mercy it's mercy to the whole Group. And so it doesn't mean that everybody in Israel at that moment has eternal life or has faith in God. It's a mercy shown to the nation of Israel to not destroy them. We're talking about the group. The next reference moves from mercy for Israel to wrath on Pharaoh. So God calls both stubborn and rebellious. Both Israel and Pharaoh in Exodus have a similar character. But God has a special plan for Pharaoh that does not include mercy. God plans to show his power through Pharaoh. And the Exodus story rotates between reporting that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And the picture we get from this, the narrative is this. It's a man opposed to God and he's opposed to Israel and he has absolutely no intention of ever submitting to God as God. You know, but we could we could imagine that it's possible that Pharaoh might give in out of weakness, or out of defeat, but but not out of humility. His character is against God, and God strengthens Pharaoh according to that character, according to the character he already possesses, according to his sinful flesh. He strengthens Pharaoh to continue in his rebellion. In opposition to God, so that the full measure of God's wrath might come down on Egypt. So, strengthening Pharaoh's already hard heart ensures that the battle between God and the gods of Egypt will go to the full measure. All the ten plagues will be done, and there'll be the final destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. God enabled Pharaoh to live out the full extent. Of his wicked and rebellious heart. When it said that God hardened his heart, that does not mean that God at that moment made him sinful and rebellious. It means he hardened an already sinful and rebellious heart. Now, Paul's quote of the Exodus story should bring hearty agreement from a Jewish listener. Now, God shows mercy on whom he shows mercy, and in this case, Israel, and God hardens whom he chooses to harden in this case, Egypt. And that's a pattern Israel can accept. Paul's point here is that God is just in his determination of who receives mercy and who is strengthened in the hardness of their heart because the determination has to do with God's wisdom and not with human rights or demands. It depends on the desire of God. And this brings us to Paul's next point in 19-24 to that God's wrath rightly belongs to all, so God is free to show mercy or wrath according to the wisdom of his plan. So this is Romans 9, 19 to 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Paul recognizes that he has not satisfied the question about God's justice. In verse 19, Paul suggests an objection to his teaching that God has the right to show mercy to whom he wants and to harden whom he wants. So a natural objection to such an assertion is this. Why then does God still find fault? For who resists his will? So the objection follows from the idea that God's just in hardening Pharaoh's heart. But if God hardens, how can man be held accountable? And then Paul's going to come back with an argument that that feels at first glance fairly um, unhelpful. You know, at first glance, it seems to be saying just shut up and accept it. I don't think that's quite the right tone, but I think there is something is similar to that. You know, Paul says this. On the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, "Why did you make me like this?" Will it? I believe Paul, he, he is telling us to step back. He's not telling us shut up and be quiet, but he's, he's telling us to think about what you're saying. You know, step back in your indignation and remind yourself who you're talking to. Who is really the better judge of what is just and right? Are we human beings? Are we really qualified to call God out? And to require him to explain his own actions. Do, do we, do, do his desires and plans need to live up to our standard of what is just? You know, is my philosophy so sound that I, I believe that I can bring a valid complaint against God? I, being a sinful, self absorbed human being, Limited in knowledge about my human nature, limited in the facts of history, limited in rational ability, limited in moral ability, and limited in understanding regarding what true holiness is in the first place. Am I claiming to have insight into the nature of justice to such a degree that I can take God to task and let him know that what he thinks is just is really not just. Is that what, is that the attitude I'm coming at God with? I, I think it's, I think it's okay for us to not get it. If God's the one who mercifully has to draw people to himself, and if God can harden a man's heart, then, then, then does man really have choice in this? And is that, and if man does not have choice, how is it that God can hold him morally accountable? And it's a fair question. It's just a question we ought to ask with caution. We know we know the Bible teaches that God has the right to harden someone's heart. We know the Bible teaches that God must work in a person if they're actually to have the eyes of their heart open so that they can see him and believe. We know that's what the Bible says, but we also know that the Bible holds men morally responsible for their actions. So the Bible is teaching both that God must and God does work in the hearts of men and women and that people are held morally accountable. And now how do those two things work together? I'm not, I'm not sure, to be honest, how they work together. But I know that God is just. And I know that however it works out that God knows what he's doing, And God has the right, sovereignly, to choose to show mercy to whom he would show mercy and to harden whom he would harden. And I don't need to give up my philosophical questions. It's it's valid to hold questions and to think, am I really understanding this correctly? But But if I'm not able to approach it with a humility appropriate to my status, if I'm not able to say, you know what, I really am very limited in my ability to understand righteousness, holiness, and justice. And God is God. If I can't come to the question with that much humility, I have no place calling God to account. Paul's saying, take a step back and consider who you are and consider who you're accusing of injustice. And maybe, maybe just maybe go read Job again and see how it worked out for him. So then, but then after that rebuke, after Paul says, who are you to, to talk back, oh man, he does give us an answer. He describes God as a potter and the nations as vessels, some designed for wrath and some for mercy. And there are, there are a number of points here that we should pay attention to. First, we should recognize in verse 21 That the same lump of clay God uses to make some vessels for honorable use and some for common use is human sinful flesh. So, as in the example with Pharaoh, God's not starting with a good person and hardening him. He does not even start with neutral material. God starts with sinful material in every single case. And he either is allowing it to continue. In the direction it's already going, or he steps in to intervene, so that the common use appropriate to all vessels is wrath. That's our starting point. Mercy is is the uncommon. Mercy is God withholding the just response due to everybody. Nobody has a demand on mercy. One reason we have to be very careful about demanding justice. If you demand justice, you just might get it, and you don't want it. You want mercy, not justice. In verse 22, we notice that Paul starts an if-then statement, which he doesn't complete. And we have the if, but we don't have the then. I like Douglas Moo's suggestion that, that we should complete the sentence, and that the natural completion of the idea would be to say something like this. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, then should we not acknowledge the righteousness of God to act in such a manner? That's the part he would add. Should we not acknowledge the righteousness of God to act in such a manner? The idea turns our thinking around a little bit, whereas we might question the justice of God exerting wrath. Here Paul argues that God should be permitted to show patience. His argument is aimed towards the Jewish presumption of wrath on Gentiles. Paul's point is that God is righteous to show patience towards pagan Gentiles if he so chooses, and he's righteous to show patience towards an apostate Israel if he wants to. So the Potter analogy used by Paul is reminiscent of Jeremiah eighteen one to 6 Isaiah twenty nine sixteen, and Isaiah 45, 9. So this, the use of the potter like this is, was something very familiar in the, the prophets. And so you have to assume that Paul had that in his mind. And the strongest connection comes with the, the Jeremiah passage, Jeremiah 18, one to six, where the prophet describes God as a potter and warns Israel that, that God has the right to destroy this vessel he has begun and to start all over. So following that pronouncement by Jeremiah, God says to Israel, he says this, Behold, I'm fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. So what we see is that with the pronouncement of wrath that God has the right to start over with the, the vessel, is followed up by this call to repentance that, that pay attention what's happening to you, Israel. As this wrath is coming on you, let it be the sign and the motive to turn you around and come back to me. And this seems to be an implicit principle whenever God decrees wrath. There's always this idea that that wrath is going to come and it's going to be on the people until they repent and turn back to God. So even closer to our current context than Jeremiah, you know, we can see this idea in Romans 2.4. That one of the reasons for God's patience in holding off wrath is to give opportunity for repentance, and that's what Romans two four says. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you towards repentance? So it's difficult to rule out the idea that God's patience towards objects of wrath might include a merciful motive. You know, provide He's providing time for a repentance before he brings about final destruction. The the coming wrath or the beginning of the experience of wrath or even patience before the wrath occurs, all of that could be intended to, to provide opportunity for the one under wrath to repent and turn and receive mercy. We also need to remind ourselves again that Paul's context here is about corporate choice, not individual choice. So just like with Jeremiah, the vessels are not individuals in this current context, but nations. You know, the the vessel on the potter's wheel was Israel, not an individual Israelite. So we're talking about God's choice of wrath or mercy on one of two corporate entities. We're either talking about Israel or Gentiles or maybe some nation of Gentiles. And because we're talking about entire groups experiencing wrath, We also recognize that wrath on a group does not necessarily mean wrath on every individual member of the group. So the wrath of God on a people often moves some in the group to repentance, even if it's a small minority or a small remnant. And those who repent receive mercy in the form of forgiveness and in relationship with God, even though they still might be included in the consequences that fall on the nation as a whole. So Daniel and his friends are just such an example of individuals caught in a response of wrath to corporate Israel. So the invading, the invading army of Babylon is fulfilling God's punishment. And though Daniel and his friends do not escape the wrath of exile, they do experience the mercy of God in relationship with him and later in their own life experience. So wrath on a nation doesn't always necessitate wrath on every individual within that corporate people group. So recognizing that the vessels of wrath are the corporate groups of Israel and Gentiles, it also means we have to be careful in how we apply the passage to our theology of individual salvation. The language of hardening and the language of mercy here, it could apply to individuals, but I have to be careful because how Pauls applying it right here is primarily towards groups. And I'm not here trying to give us a way to get out of predestination. You know that's that's really clear in Romans 8:29 where Paul is talking about individuals who are being reformed into the image of Christ. And he talks about them as being predestined, called, justified and glorified. And he's not talking about groups, he's not talking about nations, he's talking about individual people. But that's Romans 8 what I'm saying is that we need to allow Paul to argue what he's arguing and to then take care in how we apply that argument to related issues that are not Paul's primary consideration. And right here, Paul's talking about who gets designated as the people of God and within that, his choice to show mercy to a particular people group or to show wrath to a people group. So we're talking about corporate groups. That's our primary focus here in in this section moving on with paul's argument we see in verse 23 that one of the reasons god might show patience to groups deserving wrath is to bring about mercy on others and a good jew at the time of paul might naturally interpret paul's words here with gentiles in the place of wrath and israel in the place of mercy so the jew might understand the dominance of the gentile roman people over israel as god showing patience to Rome, which is clearly a vessel of wrath, to make known the riches of his glory to Israel, God's vessel of mercy. And up to this point, you know, that works with the argument the, the Jew may be following Paul with careful agreement. You know, Isaac's descendants are chosen for blessing, not Ishmael's. Good so far. Then Israel's descendants are chosen, not Esau's. Still good. Then with Moses, Israel receives mercy, while Pharaoh and Egypt experience wrath. So, amen to that. But then the shocker comes. You know, up to this point, it's clear that the vessels of wrath are Gentile people, and the vessels of mercy are Israel. Israel is the one to whom God may known the riches of His glory. Israel is the one prepared beforehand for glory. Right? Wrong. And this is where Paul completes a a somersault in midair with a full twist and everything gets turned around. He declares in verse 24 that the vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory are, and this is how he says it, even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. The vessel of God's mercy here is the body of Christ. It's not a we, And it's not a they, it's an us. We are the church among whom both Jew and Gentile are included. And sadly, at this moment in salvation history, Israel is the vessel of wrath. God bore with Israel patiently to bring about the death and resurrection of Messiah, to bring about the birth of the church in Israel, and to bring about the spread of the church to the Gentiles. Even while Israel was in rebellion and deserving of wrath, God showed patience with Israel so that the vessel of his mercy, the body of Christ, this group from many nations, might come to know the glory of his riches. These believers in Jesus are the ones prepared beforehand to experience the glory of the new kingdom. So, where he's been leading all along for the Jews to clearly see themselves as the vessels of mercy, right at the end we see it switching around. And it's at this point of time, we're not talking about Israel, we're talking about the church. And God's institution of a new covenant brought about a reformulation of how we answer the question, who are the people of God? So, we have a new orientation. It's not completely unexpected. God indicated the coming change through the prophets. And that's the fourth and final point of this passage, that God announced his plan ahead of time, his plan to harden Israel and to include Gentiles. That's in Romans nine twenty-five to 29. Let's read that. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. The new orientation prophesied here by Hosea and by Isaiah involves not only the inclusion of Gentiles, but a significant hardening among the majority of Israel to be like Sodom, to be like Gomorrah, unless he had left us a remnant. There will be a remnant, but that's all. The word locus, it's a good word. It means the position or place where something is located or situated. And it's a helpful word in recognizing a shift from the old covenant people of God to the new covenant people of God. There's been a shift in locus. While the old covenant was in effect, the locus of the people of God was Israel, geopolitical Israel. God's plan involved a nation that had a geographic center and a political center, and that would be the place where right worship and right behavior would be defined by the law of Moses. God told Israel in Deuteronomy 4, 6, Keep and do the words of this law, for that's your wisdom and your understanding, in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statues and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And though Yahweh was never a local God, but always God of God and King of Kings, he did decide to establish a people in a particular locality to shine forth his glory. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The plan was for one nation to stand out as special and as such to be a witness to all other peoples. This was God's plan under the old covenant. But that covenant and that plan were always meant to serve a temporary purpose until the coming of Jesus Christ and a new covenant. And that new covenant is a new wineskin. You can't do the new covenant just like the old covenant. And one way is that it's really new is a shift in locus. The locus of the people of God has shifted to Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual locus, a locus who's a person, not a place. And the people of God are a remnant from all nations being comprised of every person who truly believes in Jesus Christ. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The locus of the people of God is Jesus Christ. And the people of God is now comprised of everyone who has truly believed in him and worships him in spirit and in truth. And the concrete expression of the people of God is now found in the local community of believers, the expression of the the body of Christ. And this is what the Jews of Paul's day did not understand, could not understand, would not allow themselves to understand. God's plan involved disassociating the people of God from the nation-state Israel and opening wide the doors of mercy to Gentiles, and this Israel could not accept. In answering the question, who are the people of God, they misunderstood that the compassion of God shown earlier in his choice of them was now being shown in a new way to include Gentiles. They missed mercy. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at ObserveTheWord.com.